This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, we wanted the question to have something to do with COVID-19, but also uh, to have be a bit on the lighter side of things. And it is St. Patrick's Day. You've been hearing in the news restaurants and bars in Vancouver being asked to close today in uh, preparation or in hopes that in doing so will force people to social isolate, uh, will at least stop people from gathering close together. And in turn, that could spread the virus even more. So people have been asked to not go out and celebrate St. Patrick's Day today. So our question to you is, how are you planning to celebrate, if you are, while still staying healthy? And you can head on over to Twitter and cast your ballot at CKNW or at Jill Reports. We put a few options out there. Are you going to drink a Guinness at home? Are you going to cook a big Irish meal? Maybe go for a walk or nothing. Hashtag social distancing. Again, you can vote on Twitter at CKNW. Would also love to hear from you on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. You can leave your vote there and uh, let us know why or what it is that you are going to be doing. And we will bring you those results throughout the day. Asking you the hot question of the day. How are you planning to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, if you are, while still staying healthy? Let's bring back Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's on the line with us once again. Jason, thanks so much for being back here. Hey, it's great to be joining you again. Well, we appreciate it because I know a lot of people still have a lot of questions. So we're also going to open up the phone lines. If people do have questions, you can call and ask Jason Star 9898 on your cell phone, 604-280-9898 if you want to call on that line as well. And Jason, what do you think as far as it is St. Patrick's Day? So one of the big stories yesterday, it was announced uh, the mayor of Vancouver saying, look, we want all bars and restaurants to shut down today because we don't think that people are going to be able to follow the stay away from others by at least a meter. Uh, good move, I would imagine, as far as trying to stop the spread of this. Well, yeah, and and for those of you who might be you know wondering, I think this might be going a little bit too far. Let me just point out something. Um, if you listen to some of the interviews that we had in the beginning of January about this virus, we were all like, oh, it's contained. It's in Wuhan. It's probably going to be a small amount of time, and then it'll be gone. And then what happened is on January 18th, there was this massive party that they had in Wuhan for the Lunar uh, Festival. Um, It was uh, 40,000 people, sorry, not people, but actually families. So we're talking, you know, over 100,000 people showing up. And, well, we didn't quite know that this thing could spread much like uh, the common cold does. And then out of nowhere, boom, it exploded, absolutely exploded everywhere. And that just a few days later, on January 22nd, that's when China shut down the entire country. So I don't think any of us want that to happen here. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, th- this whole, the idea of social isolation or self-isolation, I think is new for a lot of people. And I've heard it described or, or explained uh, before as well, saying the whole reason for that one meter is that if somebody is infected and say they sneeze or they cough, those droplets, mm-hmm. if, if they can't get to you, they'll then fall to the ground. And once they fall to the ground, you're pretty much okay, unless you are licking the ground, which hopefully mm-hmm. nobody is doing. Is that is that a good description or definition of, of why we are self-isolating? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good dis, uh, sort of description of why we should be doing this. I should also point out 
that uh, when you're sneezing or you're coughing, um, there's sort of like this little cloud that's around you um, that lasts for anywhere from 30 to 45 seconds before it drops. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of people out there who are concerned that, you know, this thing could be airborne for like three hours or something like that based on some studies. Well, those were done in a laboratory and under, you know, very, very specific conditions. In the real world, uh, there's really no um, significant problem after those 30 to 45 seconds. What the big issue, of course, is that if you are not within or if you are not outside of that, you know, one meter uh, distance, then you could come into contact with that cloud. You could get those droplets inside of you. And, well, there's a likelihood you may end up getting infected. Do we know how long this particular virus can live on a surface? Yeah, I mean, again, if you're doing the laboratory testing, uh, you can probably keep it there for like nine days and it'll live. Um, If you're doing sort of real-world testing, um, what ends up happening is that the droplets come out and then they drop to a surface. And they're very, very infectious until basically it starts to dry up. And when it dries up, what ends up happening is that the virus sort of loses its infectivity. We used to do this in the laboratory all the time just to mimic the real-world example. Now, how much of time is it going to be before it really presents a risk? Well, it may be as low as two to three hours, and we saw that with SARS. It could be a little bit longer. I usually like to say about a half a day. And then after about a day, it's getting a little bit lower. And then by the time you get to around two days, you're probably so low that you're not going to be able to infect yourself unless, again, you're licking that surface. All right. Uh, that's a, a, a visual uh, we don't, <laughs> we don't no, often I have, mean, but it uh, gets is, the is point. Microbiology 101 is do not lick. And, and that's, honestly, I think this is a very good time for us to be uh, sort of complying with that. Absolutely. Um, Costco put out a letter today uh, talking about the experience that they're seeing, the surge in business. We've mm-hmm. seen videos, we've seen pictures of this. Uh, they've talked about how they've increased the sanitizing protocol, the cleaning protocol, uh, but they're also now bringing bringing in uh, um, uh, ways to get employees and people to social distance. And they're also trying to limit uh, how much people can purchase. Because doesn't that kind of fly in the whole face of all of this, is that you see people uh, getting the advice to social distance, but then they're all over each other trying to get toilet paper at a store? Yeah, I mean, you see, the the problem is is that um, social distancing is still a relatively new thing um, when it comes to the mindset. Uh, well, we do that when we see somebody sneezing and coughing. I mean, it's just a natural response for us to walk away. It's a, it's a natural disgust that we have. But the problem is, is that if people are not doing that, uh, we tend to believe that we can go inside of that personal space and there's not going to be that big of an issue. I, I think what's going to have to happen is over time, we're going to have to learn a little bit more about that need for that social distancing so that it becomes the first thing in our head as opposed to, um, you know, rushing to get the toilet paper onto your cart before someone else does. Now, it's not necessarily going to be perfect, and unfortunately, shopping centers, grocery stores, these types of places are very difficult to, um, you know, enforce this social distancing. But I think, you know, we do have a personal responsibility. We can't just rely on everybody else to tell us what to do. And so I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to be able to prevent infection, whether it be COVID-19 or flu or any other respiratory virus, you know, just think about that a little bit more and and see if you can get that to be sort of more advanced in, in your thought patterns.
All right. Uh, we have a couple of callers uh, with questions on the line, which we'll get to uh, before we take a break. Uh, John is on the line with us uh, today. John, do you have a question for Jason? Well, not so much a question, but I have a a comment. I think this has been blown out of proportion. Maybe I'm naive, but in the United States, the CDC reported from October 1st, 2019 to uh, February 1st, 2020, 14,000 people died of the regular flu. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't see that many people dying in the United States. Canada, well, it's probably about 10 or 20 percent of what happens in the United States. I, I don't understand what the big thing is. They haven't reported. Now, the, the, the Americans reported that 14,000 died. How many Canadians died of the common flu? I think it's just gone crazy. People have gone nuts. Well, I, let me put it to you this way. Any response? Um, the, the big concern that we have right now with this virus is that it tends to kill like SARS, even though it spreads like the common cold. And that's the big issue that we have. You see, we know flu inside and out. And I totally agree with you. We have so many more people who are getting sick and who are dying as a result of the flu. The flu is a nasty bug. But how many people have actually invoked social distancing as a result of flu? How many people have tried to prevent themselves from getting infected based on flu? I mean, we're so used to being around the flu that we just ignore all of the hygiene measures that I've been talking about for years and years and years. Well, now you're being faced with a situation where you're not just going to have the pain in the chest, the, the gorilla sitting on your chest, and yeah, it may make you knocked out for a few weeks. It may put you in the hospital. And if it puts you into a hospital, you're putting, you know, a strain on healthcare facilities. And that's really the reason for doing all of this. It's not the virus itself. It's the disease that it causes and what we need to be able to do to be able to help people. And we are also finding out, and this is getting me a little bit more concerned, that younger individuals are also coming down with this in places like Italy and Iran, and they're not surviving particularly well. So I don't know if that will happen here or in the States. But at the end of the day, we need to be more prepared than just simply saying, well, this is blown out of proportion. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Let's take one more phone call before we take a break. And Lucia is on the line. Lucia, do you have a question for Jason? Um, uh, Yes. Um, What do you do? I was at Costco yesterday, and the person next to me, which was quite close, Mm -hmm. um, he obviously had a moist cough and coughed in the tissue, and he threw the, excuse me, the paper into a trash can nearby. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm concerned how long does it let, It was an open trash can. Yeah. And so do people need to be concerned about that because they're standing by the trash can? And also if the worker who empties the trash can, would he be uh, concerned about that? Mm-hmm. And that actually is a really, really good question because when we talk about, um, you know, droplets, Uh, and and aerosols and airborne spread, one of the big concerns is that there may possibly be a virus in the air. Now, if this was measles or chicken pox, uh, then yes, totally, you would be worried about this. You would be concerned about this. But because we're dealing with something that essentially stays in the droplets, the droplets are going to be inside that tissue and they're going to get suspended there. Um, They're going to get trapped there, essentially. So when that tissue goes into the garbage can, um, you don't need to worry about uh, the virus coming and getting you. Now, as for the the garbage men, um, the people who are throwing out the trash, um, that 
if, if it's been within that three to four hours that it's, you know, surviving on surfaces, then, yeah, there, there could possibly be a risk. It's very, very low, mind you, but that still brings into the idea that, you know, even in hospitals, they have infection prevention control methods and protocols for throwing out garbage. And I think these are things that we may start looking at as we you know, move forward down the road to be able to protect everybody. So I really thank you for that question. Lots happening. We still have a few moments for your questions. I'll try to get to as many as I can. Adam is on the line. Do you have a question for Jason? Yeah, I had a question about e-cigarettes. Uh, I was wondering, seeing as the industry promotes this, when the guy beside me blows out the smoke, it's not smoke, it's water droplets. What does that do for the virus? All right, Jason, any thoughts on uh, vaping and the vapor? Uh, yeah, we're still trying to figure out what this is all meaning. Um, we do know that uh, uh, nicotine um, is bad. We do know that uh, smoking seems to have some effect, although we're not exactly sure what it is. And as for vaping, uh, it's still probably going to be uh, at least a few more months before we have uh, the data to be able to understand that. All right, let's go to Pat on the open line. Pat, what's your question? Uh, not a question, more of a comment. I just got a text this morning from a trusted colleague in Switzerland who owns her own environmentally uh, aviation consulting firm, and she said the government of Switzerland did a press release this morning indicating that they've lost all control of the situation. People are dying everywhere. She has been on lockdown in her house for two weeks. The army is patrolling the streets and stopping from anyone. And they have to have a number to go shopping. All right, Pat, thanks for that. Uh, I had not heard that or those measures uh, being taken. Uh, do you want to get to as many people as we can? James is also on the line. James, do you have a question for Jason? Yeah, I, I want to know in his opinion that they should close down the cab companies because they got no protocol for disinfecting and they take hundreds and hundreds of people around places every day. All right, Jason, what's your thoughts on uh, cabs? I would we- imagine ride sharing as well. Yeah, we actually just had that discussion uh, in New York City. Uh, I was chatting with some people there. And, uh, you know, should we be banning cabs? Uh, The reality is is that people do need to move around. um, And most of the time, uh, it's individuals. Now, that may require a disinfectant wipe down after one individual to another. It might be easier with ride sharing. um, But with taxi cabs, uh, it's really going to be a matter of deciding, you know, what the best option is. Also, take your own personal responsibility. After you get into or even out of a cab, use the hand sanitizer, then you don't really have anything to worry about. All right. And Lisa is on the line. Lisa, what's your question? Um, I have a couple of questions to do with using alcohol to uh, wipe um, a surface, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard that it's actually better to have a little bit of water in there, uh, maybe 25% water, because the alcohol... Uh, apparently um, evaporates so quickly that perhaps it doesn't have time to kill anything. All right. Um, so I'm just wondering about that. And we'll take uh, Jason's answer. We've only got a minute left. Uh, so, Jason, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every time you hear me talk about alcohol, it's 62 to 70%. If you're using pure alcohol, forget about it. If you're using rubbing alcohol, put 10% glycerin or some other water into it if you're just using a disinfectant, and it'll be right the concentration. Just make sure you're doing it for a minimum of 15 seconds on your hands, 30 seconds on a surface. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm sure we will chat again. Thanks so much for your time.
It was a pleasure. Take care. I want to shift gears a little bit. We are still talking about COVID-19, and I saw this story, and uh, I've talked to uh, Tom Seward before. He's a lifelong hunter. He's a fisherman. He's a wilderness guide. He's done some pretty interesting things in his life. And what caught me about this story was he is taking self-isolation to the extreme. And uh, this is not what everybody has to do. There are no recommendations that this is what you need to do as the virus is continuing to spread. But I thought it would be interesting to check in with him to find out what he's going to be doing on North Vancouver Island. And he's inviting other like-minded survivalists to go with him. And he's joining me on the line now. Thanks a lot for calling me. Uh, We have talked to you in the past uh, about various issues, uh, seal hunts. uh, We've talked about uh, Bigfoot. But today we are talking because you have a very different approach to dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So what are you planning to do? Well, I'm planning on heading into my traditional territories off northeastern Vancouver Island and uh, going tribal, basically, going to live like my ancestors lived for thousands of years. It means when low tide is out, time the buffet table set, time to grab your clam fork, go down and do a harvest, jump on your boat, go out and get your food, and uh, basically get out of the concrete jungle because they're just, uh, to me, they're just petri dishes full of virus and it's going to be even more why would you want to stay here, you know, confined to your house when you have a boat or you have a cottage or you have a friend who has a sports fishing resort? Get out there. Get out into the isolated areas and lessen the chances of contracting the virus. Oh, that certainly is. It's taking self-isolation to a whole a different level uh, entirely. Now, I understand, though, are you going with other people to do this? Well, my son is going to come in and help me set up, and then he's going to look after my parents and uh, the family in Nanaimo. And I'm just going to go out and start preparations, hopefully, if all goes well. And then uh, if it does go sideways, which it more than likely will, as we see with Italy and uh, China, um, at least then they can jump in the vehicle and get up there. And, you know, they have firewood cut, tarp set up, tents. I actually have cabins that look like, made a red cedar that looked like traditional native-style longhouses. They're very small. They're basically just the size of a garden shed, but they give you shelter. You know, put some insulation in, a wood stove, you got heat. And, you know, the best thing is you don't have to go down to a grocery store like I did yesterday with 100 people there all clamored in, filling their baskets and big lines, and, you know, that's can increase your chances of getting the virus. Uh, do you know anybody at this point where you are that has been affected by this or has has contracted the virus? Um, I haven't personally have, you know, but Vancouver Island with the cases they have, you know, it's just a matter of time before that increases. So, you know, the way I feel is, you know, I lived out in the mouth of Night's Inlet for over 20 years being a Native watchman, guardian of our village, running my ecotourism operations, hunting guide. I know what's out there. There's all kinds of uh, abandoned structures, you know, where you can go salvage building material if you don't bring any in. And uh, there's the frontier. People that are more than likely going to say, you know, you might have to set your tent up there for two weeks, but if everything all clears, you're more than welcome to come stay in my float house or cabin or resort. Right. And that's what I understand, too. So you're going to go set this up. But then if more people wanted to come, are you telling people exactly where you are or how are you? Are you are you open to then more people joining you? I'm open to like minded people that have the skill set. So in other words, you have your pal, you have your fishing gear, you have a boat. You know, someone phoned me and said, hey, I got an 18 foot Lund. And I said, hey, 
well, you might want to come out in the weekend there, coming up and start helping us because we're going to need a boat out there. And, you know, so it's, you know, I'm open to people, you know, getting a hold of me if they're, you know, have the same skills and that I'm not going to take, you know, people out there that don't have a clue about what Bush is all about. You know, it is rugged out there. Absolutely. And like you said, this is something that you've done in the past. So it's not like you're just going into the wilderness and, and freestyling it and hoping for the best. You have these skills and you've used them before. Exactly. And I don't recommend it to anyone who doesn't have the skill set because, you know, if you do, do a mistake out there, you're dead. So, you know, it's better, you know, what I'm basically doing, like I'm posting on my social media, you know, Sasquatch Island and uh, Pacific Balance Marine Management, I might post something about, well, at least we didn't harvest the seals yet. We got lots of protein out there waiting for us. So, you know, it's, you know, if I, I hope two or three people or 20, you know, get through this pandemic a lot better by, you know, having that light bulb go off above their head and go, hey, we got a 21-foot sailboat. What the heck are we doing hunkering down here in North Vancouver? Let's jump on that sailboat and go anchor out in the bay and stay to ourselves and enjoy the next four months. And, and I would imagine you'll have some kind of first aid kit with you. Are there, are there concerns that if you get injured or if you get sick, you're so isolated? Not really, you know, you know do your best not to get injured or anything like that. But at the same turn, you know, I, I can't see our services shutting down totally. You know, if someone you know, gets injured, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a medevac available, hopefully. How far away from civilization would you, or are you planning to be then? I'm actually, I can hike out a few kilometers and get to the main logging road. But if I do go deeper and I get into my traditional territories, you know, it's the Western Broughton Archipelago, you know, it's, I'm not that far, half an hour on Vancouver Island. All right. So you're still going to be kind of off uh, North Vancouver Island? Yes. Off my traditional territories because I belong to one of the Kwaklaakiwak tribes. Since the 24th of January, I've reached out to my friends that have skill sets, carpenters, uh, someone who's uh, knows the medicinal herbs and remedies and edible foods that are out in our coast. I've reached out to people that have uh, hunting skills and fishing skills, trappers. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, this is the location. You know, those people, I have an email I'll be sending out here that's going to give coordinates and the different rally points. And, you know, if it progresses and gets worse, you know, just move further and further, you know, out into isolated territory. You know, British Columbia, you know, everyone's so accustomed to being in Vancouver, Victoria. Look to the north. You know, we have a huge chunk of British Columbia that's uninhabited. And it's the highest concentration of protein in its natural setting at low tide, high tidal areas at low water. All the clams, all the barnacles, mussels, seaweed. And we're right now at the beginning of spring, so the berries will be coming in and the other foods, and then of course we have hooligans coming in, and herring are spawning right now. And in another couple of weeks or another couple of months, we'll see the salmon coming. So there's all kinds of food out there. You know, it's not like you have to go and take food away from people that need it in the cities by, you know, throwing shopping carts to overflow. And you know, just get what you, the basics you need and get out there. Jump on your boat. And that's one of the things that's surprising me is. I'm sitting here looking out in the water and there's no boats. I remember 911 when that day happened in September. I remember the hundreds of boats heading south to the cities. How come now that we have a pandemic, I'm not seeing hundreds of boats 
heading north. Because it is such a changing situation and uh, it's changing hour to hour almost at, at some points, how long are you prepared to stay out and be in that isolation? Well, I lived out there for years. You know, to me, it's you know, no biggie to go out in the bush and hunker down. You know, it's the most beautiful place to be. And thanks to the cell networks, we got cell range in most of British Columbia's bank, northern, northeast Vancouver Island region. And with a VHF radio, you're tied into the emergency channels to listen to updates. So, you know, it's, you know, something we have to look at. And I don't hear or see any people thinking about that. They're, like, you know, more concerned about having sanitary wipes and toilet paper when they should be thinking about their boat, their yacht, their fishing resort they have. You know, how come no one's reaching out and saying, hey, look, I got this fishing resort. It's not like I'm going to have a fishing season, tourist season this summer. You know, why don't you help out and let's go stay in my resort for a few months. All right. Well, Tom, we'll leave it there. Uh, Very interesting, uh, your take on this and reaction to this. Thank you so much for chatting today. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. We are going to shift gears a little bit and talk about how how some people are using the pandemic to scam people. This, according to the Better Business Bureau, and Carla Laird joins me, Manager of Community and Public Relations at the Better Business Bureau, the Lower Mainland of BC. Carla, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me and hello to your listeners. Well, it's unfortunate we even have to talk about this because you would hope in a time like this uh, we would bring out the best in people and it would be about helping others and getting the right information out there. But unfortunately, there are people trying to take advantage of others. Yes, absolutely. Um, We've seen over the last couple of years that this is prime time for scammers. They tend to pay attention to the news. They know what's going on globally. They know what's at the, um, you know, the heart of people across the world. And this situation is very similar to other uh, moments of crisis. For example, the wildfires in Australia, and they took prime advantage of that. So this global pandemic is also an opportunity for them to scam people and they are working actively at it. So what are they doing? So right now, you know, we've been monitoring our BBB scam tracker, which is the resource that, you know, consumers send their reports about scams to us from across North America. And we've started to detect uh, an influx of scams or reports about scams specifically related to the coronavirus or other, as other people know it, as COVID-19. And the top ones that have made the list are um, scams concerning face masks, scams concerning fake charities, and scams concerning fraudulent health products. Uh, so we'll go through those a little bit more in detail. So what? So if we're talking about face masks, because that, that has been something that uh, that people have been purchasing, uh, we've been getting advice from health officials as to which ones might work in some scenarios. But more importantly, the fact that health officials, people in the medical system, are the ones that need them the most. What are you seeing as far as scams involving face masks? So as it relates to the face masks, this was actually the first one that started popping up on our radar. Unfortunately, what was happening is because of the increase in demand for these masks, because everyone's you know, anxious and trying to find ways to protect themselves from the virus, we started seeing where there were just random websites popping up out of nowhere with no credibility, no form of legitimacy to them. And they're saying that they have face masks in stock, face masks that you can buy an unlimited amount of, and that all you have to do is just submit your information, provide your credit card details, buy as many as you want. But the reports that came in pretty much said that they ended up getting scammed. They shared their credit card information, they shared their personal information, and got nothing in return. Or for those who probably did get something, the quality was absolutely substandard. 
Hmm. All right. So that's something definitely to watch out for. Uh, you mentioned fake charities and I, I guess good advice for people. If you already donate to an established charity, perhaps stick with that and don't be fooled by these new entities popping up. Exactly. And so that's the message that has come out. You know, in a situation like this, there everyone across the world is trying to support whoever they can. And so from time to time, there are opportunities to support through um, established charities. And if you have a charity that you've been using, stick with that charity. If you are trying to find an, an opportunity to, to, don- to donate, go to reputable established charities. The Canada Revenue Agency has a list of registered charities across Canada that you can refer to and they'll have their charity number so that you can confirm that they are, you know, an established um, organization that you can utilize. Other than that, avoid these new charities that are popping up because although they may have good intentions, considering that there's so many travel restrictions that have been implemented Borders are being closed across the world. Think about how this new charity would be able to take your money or your donation in kind and carry it across Canada to another part of the world. So, you know, the challenges that would be they would be facing, they may not have the bandwidth to do so. And then there's also the off chance that this is a full-on scam where they're just pretending to be trying to help someone, take your money, and you, your money is gone into their hands as opposed to helping those who are in need. Is it a pretty safe rule then? I tend to go onto the the CRA website anyway because I like to check the charity and to see where the money goes and how much their costs are. If the charity's not on the CRA website, is it a, is it safe to say that it's not real? And not to say that it's not real, but it's not registered right. with you know, with um, the Canada Revenue Agency, which means that they may have a different process of, for example, what they do with their revenue but but because if you are a registered charity there are certain restrictions or there are certain benefits and credits that you would get through the government and so that's why they have that status if they don't have that status then they need to explain in their website or in their manifest or, or in their mission and vision or in the details about them how they're going about utilizing the funds and on a general basis every website for a charity should give that information to potential donors and if you are donating on their website they're should clearly outline how they're protecting your information when when you put in your credit card information, you know, what's the privacy policy that has been implemented and giving you information that you know that they're going to safeguard that data once they get it. And you mentioned uh, as well fraudulent health products and uh, safe bet, I think uh, we know there is not a cure for COVID-19. And if you are looking for medical information, go to medical professionals and reputable places, uh, but don't fall for these scams uh, of people uh, trying to push these fake products. Exactly. But you see, that's the part where the scam actually comes in. We know, you and I know that, you know, there is no cure right now, but there's so many millions of people out there who don't know this. And that's when they go online, they see a pop up that says cure for coronavirus or a website or a link or something on social media that's circulating that gives the impression that something is actually there. And so they put, you know, riding on that fear and that that anxiety, they click on the link, download malicious um software onto their devices or end up reading these, you know, very elaborate testimonials about how they've been cured. And so you write on that to end up spending your money. And what really happens is you either get a product that really does not treat anything that you were hoping for, or you don't get a product at all. And so that's why it's very important that you don't follow testimonials because they're not a substitute for scientific evidence. And that you need to, as you said, rely on trustworthy sources for information 
so that you know what is actually happening. So at this point, you know, a cure is in development. No, nothing has been established. Our scientists and our health officials are working very hard. But at this point, there is no cure. So don't get tricked into buying something that does not exist. Are you concerned at all with uh, the number of people, because so many people are working from home and are staying home during this time, there are going to be more people on their laptops and on their computers that perhaps aren't part of an office system that might have better security. Are you concerned that scammers are going to be trying to target people because they know there are more people working from home? Absolutely. They're going to capitalize on that opportunity. And this is is actually a good time to, you know, bring to businesses, you know, small businesses, businesses of all sizes that they need to have privacy policies implemented to safeguard their data for those persons on their team that are working remotely. So, you know, how are, is there antivirus protection on those laptops or on those devices that are going to be de- accessing work information from home? You know, how are they protecting that, that kind of content? And then also for businesses who are, are going to have to be implementing different strategies, you need to also remember that the privacy of the confidential analysis, the privacy of the details that your staff, your clients, your customers have shared with you, those details also need to be protected. So while you're not at the office, how are the files being protected, those that are physical and those that are on hard drives, make sure that they are also being secured. All right. Very good advice, uh, given uh, that, uh, unfortunately, there are people looking to take advantage of others during this time. Carla, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to take a look at the real estate market. And Ashley Smith joins me on the line, president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about the market a little bit, but also uh, practically speaking, for people that are selling or having open houses or buying and going to open houses, are there any concerns about crowds and groups that would be coming to the open houses, given that people are now being told to socially distance? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's number one right now. If we want to think about social distancing and and prioritizing what's what's important, so you know we recognize that this is a very disruptive and things are changing day to day. Some folks uh, like to look at real estate and some need to because they're needing to move. Um, so we're we're really encouraging realtors and members of the public to really be thoughtful about how they engage in real estate and what's appropriate in this upcoming weekend might be different than what was appropriate last weekend or the weekend before. So are measures being taken as far as are realtors only letting a certain number of people into places at a time based on how big they are? Uh, it's it's a good question. There's no hard and fast rule other than, of course, we want to ensure that there's no gatherings above 50 people. We want to make sure that people are following public health guidelines um, with uh, scenarios like open houses. It, it's really important for realtors to have very thoughtful conversations with, with their clients, whether they're buying or selling, and ensure that, uh, A, that they're comfortable uh, proceeding with having members of the public in their home. Um and and ensuring you know to be screening clients, uh, making sure people haven't had any risk for exposure. Um, and there are of course certain things that are just common sense that we can ask. Is you know of course if you're sick, don't don't go into people's homes. Don't be shaking hands. Clean your hands. Have hand sanitizer available to people's properties. Um, and, and, you know, there's other things, too, that we've seen over the last several years with technology advancing. Um, you don't necessarily need to be present in a home to get a first look. Um, you don't necessarily need to be in a group of four or five. Uh, send an advocate to look at a property. 
stun them with a camera. Uh, there's lots of things people can do to try to minimize the impact. Because I would imagine as well for realtors who are there during the open houses as well, they're coming into contact with members of the public on a, on a pretty uh, regular basis and they want to maintain their health. Uh, they want to stay healthy as well. Absolutely. And, I, you know, anecdotally, uh, this is changing very quickly, but anecdotally we are hearing about people uh, cancelling open houses or not uh, making homes available to view for a period of time, um, which, of course, is their prerogative. Um, we've heard of realtors putting signs on front doors asking the public to, you know, recognize that if they've had any exposure, or if they're sick or have traveled to not enter the home. Um, uh, from an organizational standpoint, we have uh, just temporarily adjusted some of our what we call MLS rules of cooperation, and that's uh, uh, in alignment with the Fraser Valley and Chilliwack regions, um, where typically speaking to maintain the integrity of our MLS system, um, we do enforce that homes must be available to be shown within five days. Otherwise, they need to put a hold on the listing. We've removed that um, rule for the time being, so people do have a little bit more authority uh, while not necessarily having to take their home um, out of like the public eye. Right. Uh, yeah, so again, we're, we're trying to pay attention um, day-to-day things are evolving very quickly and we want to make sure, you know, everyone's protected while understanding that some people do have uh, the need to buy or sell a property. Uh, do you anticipate you might go or see more people doing this by appointment rather than a, a, a set time open house? I, I, absolutely. I think that we started to see that shift uh Definitely with in the last week, if not uh, the last two weeks uh, that that's been happening. Um, some folks, you know, uh, have been more cautious than others. But I think as the days go by, we're recognizing that the social distancing thing is something we really need to take very seriously. Um, so, you know, it's kind of not the right time to be a nosy neighbor, looky-loo, for sure. Uh, do not be going out if you don't need to be. And the real estate market itself, we've seen the banks uh, cut rates. Do you anticipate or what do you see as far as kind of the the um, reaction from COVID-19? I mean, I know it's changing and we don't know where we're going to be in two weeks from now with this. But what kind of an impact do you see this having on the real estate market? Yeah, I think you said it. It's, it's really hard to tell. And we've been hearing very um, polarized stories. So it's it's tough to know where it will trend. Um, we're hearing of multiple offers and properties and interest rates, low interest rates, obviously stimulating um, some decision making uh, from the buyer side. Uh, and then we're hearing other people just being cautious and taking a pause and thinking they're not in a rush to make any decisions right now because they're just going to stay at home and, and not add extra stress or decisions to their life right now. So it, it's really tough to know because we are hearing two sides of the coin. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. And like you said, things are changing. And what may have been uh, happening last weekend could be different this weekend and the weekend after. Uh, we'll try and keep on top of it uh, as best we can. Ashley, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's bring in Dr. John Hislop, a physician and a specialist in family medicine. Dr. Hislop, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thank you, Jill. I know you're extremely busy, so we do really appreciate uh, you taking a few moments with us. Uh, are we doing enough to stop the spread of this virus? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's been really interesting, of course. We've seen the extreme measures that have been uh, started to be taken in a number of other countries where they're, you know, completely locked down, where people are literally not even leaving their homes. 
and in contrast, in places like the United States, where they're just now perhaps starting to get it, but even as of just you know a day or two ago, images circulating around on social media of people out at uh, bars and parties, and uh, as far as I understood, pictures from Disneyland with uh, big crowds. And uh, Canada, you know, we're doing better than that. We, you know, we started implementing a degree of social distancing uh, during the week last week, and it's been stepping up uh, reasonably quickly. Um, it could be very hard to say exactly how much is needed. Uh, you know, the powers that be, the uh, provincial health officers and so on, they're doing, uh, you know, they're trying to piece together a lot of information uh, in an environment where we don't have all the information that we need to know just how much exactly is needed. And the problem is we don't want to do too little because then the problem will get out of hand. So, you know, we want to perhaps at this point, seeing how other uh, countries uh, have run into severe problems, uh, we need to perhaps err on the side of caution and uh, move forward. And, uh, I'm, you know, I've just heard literally a minute ago about what the announcement today was about with the schools. Uh, but I do think it's very prudent to do so. And I think uh, as a society, uh, we all individually here need to recognize that we need to really, really take this very seriously. We really need to keep our space from everybody else. It's very, very hard. Uh, it can be scary. Um, and we can be very isolated, but it's also critically important, or we could very much end up in the same situation that other countries are in. We heard earlier today from Vancouver Coastal Health uh, Dr. Patricia Daly extending the required closure of bars, restaurants, lounges. It was initially the downtown core of Vancouver. It's now the entire city. Uh, it's just for St. Patrick's Day, though. Do you think that needs to be extended or that needs to be permanent? I do think that needs to be very seriously considered. Um, the, the, you know, one of the challenges with all of this is even if you had everybody start literally staying home in their own homes right now today, it can, it's going to take some time until we even recognize if that worked because the virus uh, today will have already spread around to a bunch of people, and we're not going to detect that for another potentially five or six days, maybe even a little longer. And so policies that are implemented right now, we're not going to be able to tell if they've been effective or effective enough until about a week from now, uh, potentially even a bit longer than that. Um, and every day that we wait, the problem starts to really spiral out of hand. Um, so I'm, I'm not an infectious disease specialist. I'm not, uh, you know, an epidemiologist. I'm a community family physician, um, and I trust in the decisions that are being recommended by uh, the public health departments and so on. Uh, but it does need to be very, very carefully considered. And uh, personally, in my view, I think we want to err on the side of caution at this point. And, and learn from those other jurisdictions, like you said, that have these extreme measures in place. But they unfortunately, a lot of places, be it Italy, uh, Switzerland, France, they're still dealing with the spread of this virus. Exactly. And, you know, you kind of have two choices. You can either potentially overdo it right now and then... Uh, you know, a week or two from now, when you start realizing, oh, yeah, our, our curve is flattening, we're starting to see that there's not quite so many new cases, uh, you can then make a, you can take a little more time at that point to make a more calm, measured approach as to how much to then relax your rules. Uh, but if you do it the other way around, the problem will have gotten exponentially worse. And then you're now still a few weeks down the road from uh, solving anything. 
because you waited. I'd rather, at this point, personally, I'd rather uh, take very, very aggressive measures and just get this problem tackled now. Uh, otherwise, we're just extending the duration with which we'll have to deal with this and simultaneously massive increasing our costs and burden on the healthcare system. This, uh, you know, There are a lot of people ending up in ICUs around the world. We don't have a huge amount of capacity, and there's not, a, there's not really much margin for error here. Uh, absolutely. I should mention, too, uh, the phone lines are open if people do have a question for you or wanted to call in uh, with a question for you. I did get an email uh, question from a listener wanting to know about the renewals of prescriptions. And I know the announcement was made that people can now do that without going to their doctor's office. But just maybe can you remind people, so if they have a prescription right now, uh, say one of your patients, they don't physically have to come and see you before going to get it refilled? So there's a few options there now, and I very much applaud the steps that the Minister of Health put forward yesterday to facilitate uh, patient uh, care, in particular in the community. Made a number of changes, one of which was uh, very liberating for family physicians to enable us to provide care more easily. Uh, we, uh, we've always been able to do video consults, and I've been doing that for quite some time. Uh, you know, I've stepped that up dramatically, so, you know, I'm kind of doing that like five days a week now. Made it further, uh, uh, added another important step, which was to make it possible for us to simply communicate by phone with our patients uh, and be compensated in the usual manner that we would be for an office visit. Uh, this is a very big deal, so anybody who's not quite so technologically inclined can just carry on with that anyway. So you can reach your family physician. They're being very, very flexible and accommodating for any uh, regulations we previously had. You know, often it's hard for us to do refills by phone. Uh, that's not an issue anymore. I think it is a good idea, if possible, to communicate with your family physician about prescriptions. It's important for them to continue to monitor what's going on, and uh, they can communicate with you by phone now as well. Uh, but yes, uh, they, he made a, a further ruling, which again, I think uh, you know it's, it's very appropriate, and he's just trying to uh, remove any barriers to access to care, which is that pharmacists can now act uh, temporarily somewhat independently as well. And, uh, you know, as a community, we're all trying to do everything we can. I held a webinar last night for over 100 family physicians trying to uh, quickly teach them how to implement virtual care in their practices, uh, like, right away. Is it something, too, that, that you think we should be doing anyway, whether we're talking about a flu season, a, a, a season where we have highly contagious viruses out there? Uh, there's no doubt that uh, a lot of the steps we're taking now down the road in the future, once we get past all this, it'll have a, a variety of other benefits. Uh, and even right now, you know, one of the one of the issues I know it's been on my mind a lot lately, and certainly for many other doctors, is that we we not only need to stop the pandemic itself, uh, we simultaneously need to decrease the burden on the healthcare system in general. You know, we need to avoid any other infection in particular because it's just going to add to the noise and the complication of sorting out what is what. You know, we don't want anybody to even have a cold right now because everything that looks like a cold could also be the coronavirus. And so it makes uh, evaluating uh, what would normally be a very, very simple condition that we manage in like a few minutes into something that could be much more complex. Um, 
and uh, we don't want people even like getting hurt because uh, we need to keep everybody out of the hospitals. Uh, somebody goes out and can have fun skateboarding or you know doing something, they fall and they break their leg and they're in the hospital. That's going to add to the uh, burden of caring for the potential massive influx of coronavirus patients that we may be looking at within the next week or two. Uh, so what advice are you giving to both your patients and to people listening? What is the best thing that people, general members of the public, what is the best thing they can be doing right now? Uh, the most important thing is to not get sick. And unfortunately, right now, the only way that to do that is by being really serious about the social distancing recommendations that we've put out, which means really trying to, uh, I know it's no fun, but it's trying to really keep to yourself and avoid other people. Uh, we don't want you to get sick with anything at all. Uh, and uh, that can feel very isolating, but we can do this, and we can get through this, and we can still communicate to e- with each other electronically and support each other in a variety of ways, um, but we need to really, really seriously keep our space from people a lot. Um, over the last several days, uh, you know, I've uh, seen there are still people out, and, you know, every time I see a little cluster of people, you know, I sit there and start to sort of grate my teeth a little bit, thinking, like, you know, I get it. I know people want to be out, and it's beautiful out these last few days in Vancouver, and, you know, not saying don't go outside at all, uh, but it's got to be sort of with family members who you live with and try not to mingle at all, really, with other people. All right. You're right. It's it's difficult, but it certainly can be done. And like you said, we are going to get through this. It's just a matter of when. Dr. Hislop, again, I know you have a very busy day. Uh, so thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. You're welcome. If I can offer one last very brief thought mm-hmm. that, uh, again, keep in mind, other places like China, they have beaten this. Uh, just a couple of days ago, they had only four new cases. This can be done. All right. Uh, good, good point. Absolutely. Uh, doctor, thank you again so much. Thank you very much. All right. There are probably a lot of parents out there today whose stress levels were already pretty high. They are now much higher now knowing that school will not be resuming following spring break. And even though I think for the most part, we all know it's the right decision. We all know why this decision was being made or was made today and announced. It can still mean a lot of stress and uncertainty for people. And we are covering COVID-19 and all of the changes, and it's changing daily. In some cases, it's changing hourly. It can be a bit overwhelming. So let's bring in Michelle Cambolis, a registered child and family therapist, also a parent educator and a registered clinical counselor, to talk a little bit more about how to deal with these feelings of being overwhelmed and overly stressed. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Glad to be joining you. Yeah, this is a really difficult and and uh, hard time for everyone, particularly hard for families. Absolutely. So what do you tell people? Because it's not a, a one-size-fits-all, but what do you tell people that are feeling uh, very stressed and overwhelmed? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to normalize it and, and to let people um, know that, that this is a really natural um, reaction. And when we're facing uncertainty, the body and the brain system reacts in very predictable ways. Um, and, and anxiety is a part of it. That anxiety can be contagious. Um, we catch it from one another. It's an, it's an automatic response. But there are all kinds of ways that we can interrupt this panic cycle that the body is in and, uh, you know, calm our mind and, and calm our body. And what are some of those ways? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to check in with yourself regularly throughout the day and just ask, um, how am I doing? What am I noticing? Um, am I in that fight or flight response um, that, that tends to hijack the logical thinking part of our brain? And, and you can begin by just simply noticing your breathing. And if you're breathing shallow, try to breathe um, lower and slower. It's, it's a very simple thing, but it's really effective in, in calming that panic response. Um, notice your, your body and your muscles and whether or not you're, you're tensing up and, and purposely relax your muscles. Um, and then from there, check and see what's going on with your thinking mind. Are you ruminating about this? Um, and uh, if so, can you just take a moment to, to be in present time and observe your thoughts more neutrally um, with the awareness that your thoughts are going to come and go um, just as this crisis will, will come and go? And I'm glad you said that because I, I found too that we are so inundated right now with so much information and it's a situation that's changing sometimes every half hour, if, if not even faster, that at points you can be so overwhelmed, but but not even clear why or what it was. Was there one particular thing, but you just kind of feel out of sorts? So I'm glad you brought that up, that just take that moment to kind of calm down, check your breathing and figure out what it is you're actually processing. Yeah, I mean, we're processing so much information and it's changing all the time. And so there's a very natural kind of inner agitation that, that, that arises from that. And it's really important to stay informed, but it's also important to take breaks from new, news media. And there's um, something called vicarious trauma. So when we're witnessing other people experiencing trauma, then our, our mind-body system responds in kind. Um, so those breaks are really important. A lot of parents have been asking about talking to their kids about this. Uh, some kids obviously won't be affected by this. They're still carrying on. Other kids might have much more anxiety. How do you suggest uh, parents deal with this with children? Well, we really want to make sure that we are, our, we are the filter for the media um, intake. Uh, we want to make sure that they're hearing information directly from us, that we're leaving room for them to ask questions and, uh, and and really following their lead. Children are really good at letting us know um, when they're feeling anxious and, and, and when they're experiencing difficulty. So you want to just watch for those, for those signs. Um, and if they're having difficulty sleeping or getting tummy aches or, or headaches, um, those are some pretty strong signals that they may be um, feeling extra anxious. And we've been talking about various places shutting down the announcement today that schools will be suspended indefinitely. Uh, some gymnasiums have shut down as well, places where people will go to exercise to try and relieve stress. Uh, what, what do you tell people about the importance of not only exercise, but I suppose exercise and diet during these times? Oh, this is such an important point. Getting outside and moving your body, preferably in nature, is so important right now. It, it increases endorphins, so feel-good feel neurochemicals, and it counteracts the, the cortisol um, that, uh, that uh, really exacerbates anxiety. You want to avoid stimulants, coffee, sugar, alcohol. Those can also be agitating. And, um, and practice great self-care, um, getting ample rest, and, um, and, and really turning our mind to, to play and to, to, you know, finding joyful activity. One other piece here is, you know, really 
talking with kids about the positive things that are happening, um, the the ways that our our human family are coming together, um, the actions that people are taking in order to support one another. And um, if there are things that you can do to be in service, to, to call a neighbor that maybe extra isolated or someone who's elderly um, that you know that may be feeling particularly afraid, um, that's really self-supporting. And we are seeing that, which I think is really nice, seeing kind of the best in people coming out. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen some behavior that's not helpful, but uh, you're right. And bringing that sense of community together and whether it's using technology to make sure that uh, people are still keeping a safe distance. But uh, but really, I, I suppose, making sure that people know that there are people out there looking out for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of heroes that show up in a crisis. And and so that that's um it's reassuring, it's heartening. And, and so when children see that, they, they understand that there's, there's real goodness that exists in the world. And we really are working together and we are in this together. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Michelle, great advice. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate that. My pleasure. We learned earlier today, BC schools will be closing in wake of the COVID-19 outbreak. The closures will be indefinite for any schools that aren't currently in spring break. All in-class teaching must be halted immediately. So what exactly does this mean? There was also talk of moving to an online model where possible and uh, finding out what uh, skills, what uh, tools can be used in the this unprecedented uh, territory to get schools at least get kids uh, still learning let's bring in Stephen Price a West Vancouver school teacher as well as an education columnist uh, Stephen what's your reaction to what I think was expected the announcement expected by many people yeah I've been uh, thinking this was going to happen since since Friday when we left our schools I brought home uh, enough things for me to kind of keep keep my class going uh, if we needed to go online, having seen the, the news out of Alberta and Ontario at that point. Um, this is for sure the right thing to do. Um, one of the things I really appreciate, though, about uh, the British Columbia announcement today is that uh, they're creating a plan to support essential service workers. Um, I have family and friends who are in health care, and I've, I've been seeing folks at the grocery stores doing amazing work trying to keep up with all the demand. Um, and I really am glad that uh, the minister today announced that there's going to be a plan put in place to support the kids of those those folks. Uh, absolutely, because I think uh, probably the stress levels in that group alone would have been uh, extreme. Uh, what do you, how do you think it will play out? Or how will it work when we, we learned from the education minister that uh, students will still get a final mark? Uh, students that are set to graduate will graduate as long as they uh, have the requirements. So what does that mean for teachers? I think we're still trying to figure that out. I've been connecting with colleagues over the last couple of days, sharing resources, uh, kind of problem solving. So a colleague up in the interior who has two kids who are in a, a home that's super rural and doesn't have any internet connection. So, um, you know, what do we do for those students is a big question. And, and simple solutions that were coming up in the, in the conversation like, well, can we reach out and, and phone those kids and check in with them each day to kind of give them that accountability to kind of keep them moving forward. Um, It's going to be hardest, I think, for students whose family situations are weakest. So if your parents are are not well off, if if there's challenges in the family, um, it's those students, I think, that, that... as teachers, we're worried about the most in this. Um, 
those kids who have, you know, really great families and uh, they'll be fine. They'll do lots of reading and they'll, they'll have a rich environment. It's those kids who are at the, the most tenuous parts of society that, uh, that we're most worried about as teachers. And as teachers, how what happens to teachers now as far as do you uh, are all teachers now going to be uh, expected to do online learning or what does what does your job look like from this point on? That's uh, that's up in the air. The ministry said today they would be providing some resources. We don't yet know uh, what they look like. Um, teachers learned at the same time as, as the public. So I was listening um, to the minister's press conference to, to be informed for what I'm supposed to do myself. I imagine that school district's leadership is all is, is meeting to figure out district by district what the most appropriate thing is. Um, each district has different tools at its disposal. Um, my district has all of its kids already have a laptop after grade four, so we know that that's baked into what we'll do, but other districts will have will have different responses. So it'll be probably a very local response at the district level and, and even down to the classroom level. What is the strength of that teacher? What is the strength of the family environments of that classroom? Um, how do we best serve those individuals? It really comes down to that that individual level, I'm sure. Absolutely. Uh, do you think, can it be done? Because the, the idea is this is it for the school year. It would be very unlikely that classes are going to come back in before June. Uh, can that work be covered off that way? Uh, I think it'll be different. Um, the The essential thing is kids are still going to learn. Um, we know from kids that take that year off to go on that uh, that round the world trip, or or who are sick in hospital, or 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 kids who are just homeschooling because that's the best thing for them. Um, if they do lots of reading at home, they do some writing and the parents are reading that writing and they're doing some thinking in numbers, uh, generally speaking, they'll be fine. And and uh, in terms of the university side, my last career for 10 years was in admissions counseling. And that's sort of the big, uh, I think, fear is for those grade 12s who are like, oh, do I have the marks that will get me into the universities? Um, knowing some, having been on that front before, the universities will be figuring out ways of of making things fair and making things consistent with the information they have, whether that's going back to grade 11 marks, whether that's using more broader-based, essay-based type assessments, they'll find a way. Uh, and I was wondering about that too, if, in case there were grade 12 students that were really banking on uh, working their butts off at the, final, at the final stretch, that's not going to be an option. Uh, well, it may be. We don't know yet. We are supposed to be giving final grades. We there's there are always appeal systems at the universities for admissions, and and I think those will be um, quite actively used this year. And even uh, in British Columbia, we're we're really fortunate to have a very robust college transfer system. So for students who don't make that cut in their grade 12 year, which happens every single year um, for a variety of reasons, they have a really excellent second chance and third chance. Um, this system, especially in British Columbia, the way it's designed is, is actually one of the most robust in North America for handling this kind of shock and still making it fair. Uh, it's an interesting point. And also because we're dealing with, this isn't just BC students, we're talking about students across the country in the various provinces where the same thing is happening. So, I mean, it's going to be a very different playing field, a very different uh, environment come September. 
Yeah, and and the thing I think for the public to remember is that teachers and educators at the university, we all got into this because we are passionate about learning and passionate about students. And and just like we figure out a way of overcoming the challenges with our learners in class every day, we're here and, and, and you know, it's my spring break, but we're definitely constantly thinking and working and sharing ways of, of trying to uh, attack this new challenge of how do we do learning in a quarantined environment. And dealing with it too, I would imagine people are stressed. There are going to be students that it's a disruption to the routine and a routine that, that they depend on. And, and routine is essential. Um, as as parents are, are kind of going online saying, oh my goodness, how do, how do teachers do this every day? Um, there was a really good point made uh, by one of uh, one of the folks I follow on Twitter to say, "Well, actually, the first week as a teacher, you always spend building the routine, building the expectation, and that'll be, I think, where parents and teachers will share kind of some insight and learning and try to figure out how do we how do we make this." Um, not normal because it will never be normal for our kids, but um, how do we make this as um, as calm as possible and as, as routine as possible so we can get into that routine that not only will help move learning forward, but I think also will help kind of calm kids down and keep them focused on, on something other than the, the news updates or, or whatever it happens to be that, that is the, the challenging part of their day to cope with. All right. Uh, great uh, advice and insight into that. Stephen Price, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. So yesterday, we learned during the update from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix that some new measures were being introduced to decrease and help lift the burden on the healthcare system during this global pandemic. And one of those, or a few of those actually, involve BC pharmacists. Bob Nakagawa joins me now. He is the registrar with the College of Pharmacists of BC. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, what exactly, what role do you see pharmacists having as far as uh, their role as we deal with this pandemic? I think pharmacists have a huge role in, in assisting and doing whatever we can to to help uh, fight the, the pandemic that we're, we're facing. Certainly from a, on a day-to-day basis, there are many uh, patients who have uh, prescription drug needs, and those continue to be, be necessary uh, in the time of, of the pandemic. And, and pharmacists obviously are, are going to want to make sure that, that they, they are able to access their medications. Um, at the same time, we want to make sure that, that uh, there isn't a, uh, a surge of, of need through any sort of uh, hoarding or, or advanced uh, use of or accessing of prescription drugs that aren't right necessary at the moment. So we'd suggest that people um, uh, contact their pharmacy um, and, you know, maybe uh, one or two weeks ahead of when they see their, their prescription uh, need and, and uh, arrange to have a, a refill. Uh, but not to to get an inordinate amount of of drug uh, because we do find that prescription medications are sometimes in short supply and we want to make sure that absolutely everybody has access to the drugs that they they need. And so the announcement made with not requiring people to go see their doctor first, so how does that work then if somebody has a prescription and they need to get it refilled? Do they simply walk into the pharmacy and do they have to bring the bottle with them or what do they need to do? Yeah, I'd suggest that that patients continue to use the pharmacy that they, they regularly go to 
And I, I think it would be best if they gave them a call and, and arranged to have that, that prescription renewed. The pharmacist can do that uh, on their own without having to, to contact with uh, the initial prescriber. And, uh, and so they, they can uh, have the prescription ready for them when they come. Or if the, the patient prefers, many pharmacies have uh, delivery services that would allow them to uh, you know, get the prescriptions uh, provided to, to their, their residents and avoid having to go into the pharmacy. And you mentioned this as well, that people shouldn't be trying to stockpile or take too much. Uh, we're seeing that, unfortunately, uh, with some food, uh, some types of food and other supplies uh, that people have been stockpiling. Uh, so will it be the discretion then of the pharmacist on how much to actually give to the patient? Yeah, there, there'll be a prescription, an authorization for a certain amount. And, and I, I would hope that the pharmacist as well will will try to make sure that they have adequate supply to meet all of their, their patients' needs. So they, they won't be filling, you know, uh, inordinately large prescriptions uh, that are beyond that uh, sort of a normal usage requirement. And uh, and are you confident in the supply? I know you touched on this, but is there any concern about the supply and the continued supply of drugs? There's nothing particularly unusual about this circumstance uh, with COVID-19. Uh, we have unfortunately experienced drug shortages for a number of different products, and, and pharmacists are, are spending time trying to find alternative suppliers or, or at times uh, switching patients to other uh, drugs, uh, sometimes uh, to be able to meet their, their therapeutic needs at the same time as, as uh, uh, ensuring that everybody has, has access to the meds that they need. And what about the idea of social distancing and uh, the fact that uh, usually when you go to a pharmacy, you would, you would sit down and do a consult with the pharmacist. The pharmacist would then go over everything with you when you pick it up. Uh, I mean, under normal circumstances, you're actually pretty close to the person. So, so I would imagine, are there different measures in place now? Yeah, I think this, these are extremely unusual circumstances. And I, I would recommend that uh, patients, if patients are symptomatic, they uh, preferentially should have the, their prescriptions delivered to their home and communicating with the pharmacist on the phone if that's possible. Uh, right, because that also opens up the question of, uh, in the past, I would imagine if you had a sniffle or even if you weren't 100%, you might still go because it's important that you get your prescription filled. And that, that is something that's now being, uh, people are being told absolutely do not uh, go out and be around other people if you have the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and we have to be very vigilant in this as we are being reminded constantly that hand washing frequently is the, probably the best thing that, that we can do. Uh, pharmacists are a great resource for all of your um, you know, daily healthcare needs. And, and if you can uh, give them a phone call, I'm sure they'll be happy to, to help uh, ensure that you're able to, to meet those needs. And do you know how it might work with long-term care facilities in that do they already have a system in place for getting the residents there, their refills and their prescriptions? Yes, most uh, residential care facilities will will work with a a, a pharmacy to to provide the, the medications for residents, uh, and they will be uh, directly supplied to the, the the residential care home.
And as far as the number of pharmacists, uh, I know I believe that pharmacists were also included in uh, the, um, that they didn't have to self-quarantine if a pharmacist w- had traveled recently. Uh, the number of pharmacists, uh, are, are we good in that, in that we don't have to worry about uh, if, if pharmacists become ill or if pharmacists need to take time off? Yes, there certainly are concerns about um, the pharmacists, uh, being pharmacists and pharmacy technicians, uh, being impacted by either their direct travel and, and becoming symptomatic and not being able to, to go to work, or or you know other situations within the household. But if they are asymptomatic, they they should be able to to uh, attend work. We are looking at the possibility of of accessing recently retired pharmacists who uh, might be available to to supplement in cases where where uh, we're we're running into problems. But I have not uh, yet. Uh, heard that uh, that is an imminent concern. I have heard, though, that pharmacists, pharmacies are extremely busy right now uh, trying to meet uh, everybody's health care needs. Uh, which is understandable for sure. Uh, is there any concern of some pharmacies that might be located, say, in malls or in places that might uh, in the next few days or weeks be closed because of COVID-19? I don't know that the pharmacy concerns are any more than other uh, areas. Uh, certainly from a, a public health perspective, we need to ensure that pharmacies are open uh, so that patients can access them, particularly for their, their prescription medications, but also for many other uh, symptomatic uh, needs that, that patients might have. Uh, I haven't heard anything specific with regards to particular pharmacies uh, having um, individual requirements that that, uh, would cause them to close. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. A lot of information uh, for people uh, in that. Thank you so much. Uh, Bob Nakagawa is the Registrar of the College of Pharmacists of BC. Bob, thanks again so much. Thank you, Jill. Take care.